So this evening, I would like to look at, in a way, what I would call a basic, possibly fundamental habit, which could be grasping, and how, in a way, meditation could help us to find the freedom to move from grasping to creative engagement. And to see that the place we can do this, as uh, John mentioned already, is feeling. But personally, I think even more interestingly, it's at the moment of contact. And so that's what I like to look at. Because it seems to me that in meditation practice, because in a way we are in an environment which is more silent, where we have a schedule, then we have much more the opportunity to start to see that that moment of contact, and in a way, at that moment of contact with our senses, do we creatively engage or do we grasp? And I think when we meditate on a meditation retreat, it's much easier to start to see that point of contact and to start to see that actually we might have more freedom there than we imagined. And so in a way, when we are in contact, contact with a sound, contact with a sight, contact with a smell, a taste, a thought, a sensation, in a way the question is, do we grasp or not? Do we creatively engage or not? And in a way I would say meditation is a process of de-grasping. And I feel that's why when we sit in meditation, as I mentioned before, even if you have what you might call a bad meditation, I would still say that at the end of it generally, you have this feeling of, the feeling of releasing. And I think by the cultivation of concentration and experiential inquiry, we, in a way, over time, this releasing happen because of the space and the clarity that is developed. And so in a way, the Buddha was very much conscious of suffering, you know, what to do about suffering. And in a way, he was pointing out how does suffering happen? When does it happen? And yesterday, John was talking about, in a way, the suffering when we reject and in a way today I want to look at a little this kind of moment when we can grasp and what happens if we grasp and what happens if we creatively engage. And I would generally say the less grasping there is, generally there will be less suffering. So just to briefly kind of uh, see that in a way grasping and rejecting, as John mentioned already, has the same effect. We are kind of actually either holding positively onto something or holding negatively onto something. For example, if you have a problem with somebody at the office, they said something, they did something, or they did not do something, then the thing happened. It lasts maybe, I don't know, 10 minutes. And you think about them. They did not do this. They should have done it. Da, 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 da. You get into your car, you continue to think about that person. You get out of the car, 
you continue to think about the person, you talk to your husband, wife, or you are by, on your own, you think about the person, you do the washing up, if you don't have a washing machine, and you think about the person. And my question would be that actually the person has not asked to be in your head. <laughs> They've not done any, I mean, they did something then, five hours ago, but they did not ask to continue to be in your head. And in a way to see, when we do this negative grasping, we make something continue. And there, when it not necessarily need to be there, and I would say creative engagement is more, what happened? What can I do about it? Or should I just wait and see what happened next? And so in a way, to see first the mechanism of this grasping process, when there is a, the contact, the feeling. So here is my little uh, party trick. Some of you have seen it, but I think it's always good to see it again. So this is for the one who have not seen it. So here, this is very precious. And it belongs to me. Oh, it's the greatest truth in the universe, and I have got it. So either way, it is precious, it's mine. So because it's mine and it's precious, then I hold on to it. So I do this. If I do this for any length of time, two things happen. The first one is that I get a cramp in the arm. And so I would say that generally when there is grasping, there is tension. That when there is tension to look a little, where is it? What is it I'm grasping at? But I would say worse than that, if I do this, I cannot use my hand. My hand is stuck to what I am grasping at. And to me, this is the most important point about the grasping, to see that actually it stops us. When we grasp at something, we actually reduce ourselves to what we grasp at. And then that's why also there is tension, because we become much smaller, and there is no space. For anything else, I'm there. That's it. We kind of stuck together. So, <laughs> what could be the solution to this situation? One solution is to cut the hand. But it could be a little drastic. Huh? So we put it aside. That would not be my favorite solution. Though so this is an ascetic solution. Next solution we get rid of the object. No object, no grasping. But really, the object is not saying, come, 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 you really want me, don't you? <laughs> we think it does, but not really. The object came upon condition and is there. And it's me who thinks, mm, yes, mine. I keep it. So, I don't think that getting rid of the object is a solution. But I think in a way what meditation does is actually we start like this and then over time meditation helps us to open our hand and then 
we can be in contact with the object because it's useful or for whatever reason, but it can move, it can come back. There is openness, there is movement. That's what I mean by, in a way, creative engagement. Because often when we talk, say, non-grasping, means like, mm, I don't do something. Or, or detachment, which I don't like to use, because this implies you know, even more above things. But to me, it's more this openness, and within that openness, then there can be creative engagement with what we come in contact with. And so what happens when we grasp? First, I think it's very important to see, as John mentioned already, when we grasp, there is identification. The two come together. We grasp at something because there is an identification. It is mine, this is happening to me, there is some connection with I, me, mine. Then because we identify and grasp, then we solidify around what we grasp and identify with then by solidifying, we isolate ourselves with it. So then we limit, we reduce ourselves to it, and then, this is the worst thing that happened, we magnify it. This is a very important to see, that when I grasp at something, generally I magnify it, and I reduce myself. And then it's very hard, impossible for the creative potential to come in there. There is no space. And so I think what is important to see in terms of the meditation and the awareness is to see that when we grasp, we generally do two things, either together or separately. One is we exaggerate. We come into contact with something, we hear something, Wow, this is the greatest, fantastic, most fantastic music in the universe. Or it's the most fantastic person in the universe. Or it's the most amazing experience in the universe. Or it is the worst, <laughs> most terrible. And it's interesting to experience how does it feel when you say, I cannot stand it. I mean, generally, we can't stand it. But I cannot stand this noise. I cannot stand this person. When we were in Korea, uh, we used to share the room, the four uh, women together, kind of quite a small room. And then our only wish was that if they were not there, then really we would feel much better, you know. And then they would, one time, all of them were gone. And within a day, I realized it didn't make much difference <laughs> to my rumination or whatever. So it's interesting that what we add, the way we exaggerate, this is fantastic, this is terrible. And also what we do, another thing we do is proliferation, which leads to abstraction. Example, you, I presume all of you by now must have walked around the garden. And I presume you might have noticed down here, there is this very pretty camellia with red, this very pretty flower. So you come out and you see the beautiful red camellia. You see the red camellia and you can just be creatively engaged with the beauty of it. Or 
you can see the red camellia and oh, I like this red camellia. Mm, how can I get such a red camellia? I mean, where would you go in the garden? Where could I get it? I mean, could I get it in that garden center? And you see, by then, you are in the garden center and you're not with the camellia anymore, even though it's in front of you. This, I think, is important to see that you move from the contact with what is in front of you, for example, and if you grasp and identify, I want this tree in my garden, off you go. How am I going to get it? And actually, you move away from being with the beauty of the thing in that moment, as it is. It doesn't mean that at some point later on you cannot get a camellia in your garden, of course, but just to see what happened in that moment of proliferation. And to me, this is what is interesting to notice because sometimes the grasping goes so fast, we can notice, more, notice it more in the exaggeration. If you see yourself, uh-uh, exaggeration. <laughs> what kind of grasping is going on? Uh, proliferation. And we're coming back again to the beginning, to that point of contact. So what I like to do now is to look at contact in experience in terms of when I come into contact through the senses, how is it? What can I learn there? So you have the eyes, you have the visual object, you look at things, you see things. And I had this morning, I presume most of you must have had this experience of seeing the frost. There was this frost. And what did you do? Was it just this beautiful, white countryside? Or was it this, oh, God, it's going to be cold. Ugh, I don't know if I can go out. And, uh, or what did you do with it? Did you just stay with the view as it was, creatively engaging with that? Or... Did you proliferate or exaggerate in any way? Once I was on a retreat uh, for a month. About, I mean, we were the people, but we were in silence, 30 people together. And so my, my job was uh, to uh, cut the vegetable in the kitchen. And so every day, 8 o'clock, I went to cut the vegetable. And I cannot eat bell peppers of any kind, green, orange, yellow, whatever. I cannot eat peppers. And every day, I don't know why this was in America, and every day I was confronted by a pile of pepper. Red, green, yellow, orange. The cook really loved peppers. And I wondered what to do. You know, these peppers. And suddenly, when I was walking one day, I saw clouds in the sky. And it was a beautiful sky, and in it there was this cloud where just fluffy cloud who passed through it. And I saw then that I had the choice. I could see the peppers like the clouds through the sky, passing through my vision, and then me cutting them. And then they would get into the food, and I did not have to eat them. Creative engagement. Or the peppers could actually 
be like these things going through, but instead of going through and passing by, they would fall onto an hedgehog. You know what an hedgehog, porcupine. You know, if you had a porcupine and you had the peppers falling onto the porcupine, <laughs> what would they do? They would rot instead of passing through. And I thought I had the choice. Either the pepper were going to rot and it would be a little unpleasant, or they would just pass through and voila. So I decided the creative engagement, and I just happily cut them. So in a way, to see, when we see something, what do we do? Do we creatively engage, or do we kind of grasp in a certain way? Another thing we do with, uh, thi with things we see or people we see is proliferation. And that sometimes can be very harmless, but sometimes it can be relatively problematic. I remember a few years ago I was in Sweden. I'd been invited to give a retreat, and I was teaching in this little center, therapy center kind of place in Stockholm. And there were three doors. And these doors seemed to have all the same name, but with something different. And it looked very beautiful. The names looked very beautiful, the, one, the different bits. And just seeing that, it was just seeing the doors, three doors, which we never used, and this name where a bit was the same and the rest was different but looked very flowery and very beautiful. I thought, ah, this center belonged to three sisters. And these three sisters work in these three different rooms. So at the end of the weekend, I asked the ladies, oh, about the story of the sisters. And they look at me, what is she talking about? And I said, but look at the doors. Oh, they say, this is a blue room, the green room, and the yellow room, but in Danish, which to me sounded like women's name. And so the whole weekend, I had been thinking about these three sisters and how wonderful. And so in a way to see, we see something. And if you grasp at it in a certain way, you can go so far away from it. And to be careful. I think, again, as I said before, the imagination can be useful. To be careful when we go into this proliferation. And also in terms of our daily life, to look at when we see something when we look at something. And that's why I think, for me, I see it as practice. When I go shopping, or when I walk in a street with lots of shop window, or if I go into a big kind of supermarket, to kind of look at things. And what is interesting, certain things, you see them, you, you can easily be creatively engaged with them. Soap, okay. But maybe if you're in front of a computer shop, who knows if you're in front of the shop which sell an iPhone. You know, and you've heard of this famous iPhone. I thought it was very interesting. I saw that on TV when everybody kind of queued for the first iPhone and they were all so excited. And what, do, what happened then? When you see something, oh, it's like the thing itself has a glow around it. Oh, I want this. And it's not just a thing. You don't just see the thing. You actually see what you invest in the thing in terms of happiness. Ah, 
this. And the problem with that is generally the glow doesn't last very long. It's kind of a day or two, not even that sometime. But to see when we look at the shop window, what do we do? What happened there in terms of that glow? How we are attracted. And I think, in a way, the advertisement really work on that because generally they kind of show things with a little glowy thing too. I mean, it's kind of a little added there. Another thing which is very interesting we've seen, which we can learn something else, is I think it's relatively normal to grasp at things that you see. Fair enough. Contact, grasping, normal. But often, we cause ourselves suffering by grasping at things that are not there, that we think should be there. And notice if this happened to you. Because I saw this once. When we moved to France and to a new house and we had to have some work done, and we needed a staircase to go into the meditation room. And I had this vision of this beautiful staircase in wood and it would be so... And we could not get the person, and we got another person to do it, and it was ah, very <laughs> ordinary. And, and after a while, I noticed there was something funny going on when I went into the meditation room using that staircase. And then I realized I was seeing two staircases. <laughs> I was seeing the one that was there, but next to it, there was a beautiful imagined one. And it was, oh! And when I saw it, I saw what I added to it, you know, with the suffering I brought in. And I let it go, because I saw the staircase I had was good enough. I mean, I could go up the stairs, and it did the job, even if it was the most fanciest staircase in the universe. But in a way, to, to notice that, when we actually grasping at something that is not there. And I think sometimes we do the same with meditation. Insofar that sometimes I feel you are meditation, meditating here, sitting here, and next to you there is your alter ego, the perfect meditator. <laughs> so here is this wonderful person next to you. And he, he has amazing experience and no thought and whatnot. And then there is you. And I mean, in comparison, it's, pff, yeah, I mean, you don't come up to the mark. And you feel frustrated. And to notice when you do that, when there is that, you know, a grasping at that imagined image. Then you have the ears. So we hear sound, so we come in contact with sound. One minute we don't hear a sound. And then there is a sound. And so when we're in contact with sound, what do we do? And in a way, to see, and that's why the listening meditation is interesting. And in a way, the problem on a retreat is that most of the time you don't have that much to, to, to listen to. I mean, a bit of the rogue, a bit of coughing, possibly a bit of heavy breathing time to time, but that's about it. And in a way, in daily life, we have much more opportunity to be in contact with sounds. 
and in order to see how we are with that. Because I remember one day I had this experience in the, again working in our house and we had to kind of destroy a bit of concrete and so somebody came with a kind of a drill and it really was really noisy, very powerful noise. And I had to do work in the garden right next to him. And I found it very interesting to go inside the sound of the drill. And if I did not add anything to it, if I don't, did not identify with it in any way, it was this amazing sound. And really, it did not bother me at all. As long as I was inside it, totally with the sound as it was. And so in a way, to, to notice with sound, what do I do with them? Can I listen to them? Can I use a meditation to go inside them and experience them in a different way? Then another thing which is interesting is words. I mean, words is, again, something we come in contact with. And words, I think, often we feel that we are quite strong and quite independent. Actually, I think, notice how we are influenced by words. Somebody speaks to us, and how much we influence by that, how much we might grasp at it. And I remember once a friend came for lunch, just the two of us, and the whole lunch, for 30 minutes, she talked nastily about somebody I had no trouble with. By the end of the meal, I had trouble with that person. You know? and, it was, and then I thought, wait a minute. You know? And I noticed. And it's the same with television. When you listen to television, look what's going on. Sometimes you listen to something and then suddenly you find like there is this shift. You grasp at the, what the person said and then you identify in some way. And it really color the way one is. Another thing to look at with words is, in a way, what we do, how we identify with them. Once I had this experience, and in a way, two different experiences. One was when I was living in this community, and we had this once-a-week meeting, which were kind of a little intense. <laughs> community meeting in the West are kind of, you know, consensual and everything, so it's kind of always a little tough. And that one evening... The fellow, one fellow decided that he, all his problem was me. I had lots of problems with me, and I, I you know I was a terrible person, and I was always trying to organize him, and he hated it. And, and uh, I mean, it was relatively painful. You know, when you hear this, you, you sit there. <laughs> but I thought, you know. Better to creatively engage with it than grasp at it. And, you know, I just, so I listened to it. It was all very pleasant. <laughs> but I could see that he had a point. I'm a little, you know, organizational. And I could see, you know, if I did this too much, people did not like it. So I said, okay. I learned from it. But another time, in another place, in another context, I was to see somebody. It was part of my job to see the people one at a time. And so I went to see the, the fellow. I said, oh, oh, yes, now it's the time. You know, are you coming? And suddenly he stood and he looked at me and said, I am not coming. I am fed up with you. And, you know, why should I see you? And for the 30 minutes, he started to kind of very, I was quite amazed. He was very good. I say, you know, kind of trying to get me this way, that way, you know, saying negative things about this. And really, he was really good. 
very manipulative, very interesting, because generally people don't do this to me, so it was fascinating. <laughs> but at the same time, I could see it had nothing to do with me. I had not done anything of what he said. So I, do, I mean, it was not necessarily pleasant, you know, but I just stood there, kind of, you know, again with that stability, that openness, and I listened. And then after 30 minutes, he finishes, well, okay, you don't want to meet me, so be it, you know. <laughs> this is life. But it did not disturb me because I did not grasp at it. I did not identify. I saw very clearly. I creatively engaged with it. I saw clearly, this is not about me. But then I thought, if he does this to other people, this is not very nice. So later I got him with somebody else and we kind of tried to kind of talk to him and coming down a little and he came to see me anyway, but that's another story. But to see, in a way, I know it's not necessarily easy, but I think in a way the meditation helps us to develop that stability, that openness, so that in a way we have the choice to creatively engage with what we hear. Another thing with the sounds is um, ancient words. This, I think, is very interesting. What are words? You hear, you come in contact with a word, but what is a word? It's just a little sonorous wave. It arrives and it's gone. But if the word is addressed to us, it seems to get stuck somewhere, especially if it's a word we don't like. They said this to me. And recently I had this experience. We have a, I had a friend and we were talking and she seemed a little concerned and unhappy. I said, what's the matter? She said, oh, my husband, you know, he, time to time he said nasty things to me. I said, really? You know, I mean, really? I said, I mean, every day? She said, no, 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 you know, every week? No, 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 you know, time to time. I said, ah. And she said, well, you know, he said something about the washing. And I mean, I'm so stressed now. Because he said something about the washing, and now when I go into the washing room, I'm really stressed, you know. And I said, but when did he say it? Did he say it, like, last week? He said, no, 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 he said it a year ago. <laughs> and then I realized, she's, he said the word a year ago, which might be it was three words at that moment for whatever reason. But she grasped at it, and this whole time she was stressed. She was going into the room about three times a week or more than that. And every time there was that, instead of, in a way, creatively engaging, why did he say this, when did it happen, how can I be with this, etc. And so in a way to see what do we do when we grasp, and in a way the suffering we might create in that way. Then there is a nose, there is a nose and there is a smell. So we kind of smell. So we come into contact with pleasant smell, we come into contact with unpleasant smell. What do we do? So in a way, here, what, what, when you smell something, what you can smell often in the evening is a toast. Mm -hmm. The toast. <laughs> what do we do with that smell of toast? Just smell of toast? Oh, mm the smell of toast. Mm -hmm. I would not mind the toast. But will they have the right bread? Where is the toaster anyway? And just kind of, in a way, when you are in contact with the smell, 
What do we do? How are we with it? One of my uh, practice used to be, because I often go to airport, and I really like perfume. I used to like perfume, but I can't wear it because I'm allergic to it. So I would kind of see, that would be my practice, to that I could feel, you know, all the perfume counter, and you can try everything, you know. I used to do this a lot, and then I kind of started to puff up, so now I know. And I could feel the... Like, the, the, kind of like this, oh, I want to do this. I want to... And then to us to become more aware of that. Mm-hmm. And no, this is not a good idea. Just smell and don't get too close. But what was interesting, I just had to do this a few times. And now I don't do it anymore. I mean, I still smell, but there is not that, oh, I would like it so much if I could do it. So in a way, it's also interesting when there is a creative engagement. If you do this a few times, it also, in a way, stops that kind of nearly automatic kind of grasping, that kind of, I want this for myself. And just to be able to be with it as it appears. Then there is a tongue. And so there is a taste. And again, uh, John talked a little about it. And so again, you know, when we taste something, if it's pleasant, what happened? If it's unpleasant, what happened? I mean, in terms of here, generally what we do, mm, I want more of it. And, but what is interesting is that if you don't like it, how can I get rid of it? It's kind of just to kind of notice what do I do with the taste. But what is interesting with the taste is that there again we can learn something about that contact with food, with taste about what I would call grasping at new experience. The difference between creatively engaged with a new experience and an old experience. And I had this with, uh, long ago with couscous for a long time. Ten years in Korea, I had not eaten couscous. And I loved couscous long ago. So I go to Paris and I go to the Saint-Michel, where there is good couscous place, and I go and have this couscous, and it is the greatest couscous in the universe. <laughs> it's just amazing experience. Fantastic. So, what do I do? The next day, I want to reproduce the same experience, to have the same fantastic, etc. So I go to the same place, at the same time, order the same thing, and... It is not fantastic anymore. It is just so. It's not bad, but it doesn't have that thing. And that's when I realized that often we actually grasp at the newness of the experience. That kind of, and then we want to recreate that newness. But you cannot have a new experience with an old thing. I mean, you can have a new experience with a new thing, but then you're kind of constantly wanting to have new experience with new things. When you could, I mean, I could still enjoy the couscous, but if I did not grasp at that newness that I experienced the day before. And actually what also that can tell us is about meditation experience. Unfortunately, the same thing happened there. You have your first meditation experience. Wow, one bang. Wow, quietness. 
clarity, oneness, whatever it is. Wow. It feels amazing. But why does it feel amazing? In comparison with before, when you feel really stuck, really kind of, you know, tense and uh, and suddenly, if there is a de-gasping, releasing, you will feel different. <coughs> but the first experience is really amazing because compared to how you felt before, yes, it's really different. But then, you have it again. And then, it's still nice. But it's not like, wow, that first time in the Ganges in India, it was so amazing. But because it was the first time. So I think you can have different experience, which might be amazing, but you cannot have the same one exactly in the same way, especially with that wow of the first time. I think we have to be careful there of, am I grasping at the thing itself? Am I grasping at the newness? of the experience. Then you have the mind. Again, I think it, what is important to see is that we come into contact with thought. Because in a way, we have that feeling that we have a running commentary, that in a way, we have nearly a feeling that thought are always there. When actually, one second, the thought is not there, and then boop, it pops. You have the thought of whatever nature it might be a story, a thought, a plan, or whatever it is. And I think it's very, that's why it's interesting when I talk of beginning, when I talk in terms of thought, it's not to analyze the thought, where does it come from, but more to be in contact with that thought when it appears, that first moment before it was not there, then the thought is there. And at that moment the thought appears upon contact what do we do with the thought? Do we identify with the thought? Do we identify with the content of the thought or what the thought is telling us? Do we then exaggerate and proliferate? Or do we just see a thought and then creatively engage with it? Do I need to think this thought more? Or can I just leave it where it is? It appears, I can drop it. So in a way, having more kind of movement there and to me, this is interesting to see, to really see in terms of the thought. And I had that experience with a, a lady once on a retreat. It was a, a four-day retreat like here. And um, I saw the lady after a day. And so I said, how are, where, how are you? She said, well, it's my first retreat. And pff, last night was, you know, I had all these nightmares and pff, not sleep, you know, all this monster appearing in my mind. I mean, phew, I was, phew, it was tough. So, I mean, so we talked about it, and I talked about thought and grasping and various things. And then, you know, the day went, and then the next morning, I kind of, you know, tried to talk to her because I was a little concerned she was going to have the <coughs> same thing. So I said, "Oh, how are you?" Oh, she said, "I'm fine." <laughs> And I said, what happened? She said, well, last night I went to bed and then as soon as I was falling asleep, the monster appeared again. But then I saw the monster had just appeared. It was not me. It had nothing to do with me. So I thought, well, it appeared, okay. Well, I don't need to do something with it. <laughs> and then 
he disappeared and I went to sleep and had a good night's sleep. And she said, this is the first time I saw that this was not me. I had that thought, it appeared. There was this contact. And in a way, that's the first time she saw that there was a, the, the choice. She had the freedom to say, okay, I don't need to do anything with this. And to me, this was creative engagement. This was kind of that moment of space, of freedom. Then there is sensations. So I presume you have had various sensations, especially with the body as you sit here. And in a way, how are we with sensation? How, how can we creatively engage with our sensation? Many years ago, I would have attacks of pain. Suddenly, and the doctor, nobody could know why I had these attacks, and they had all kinds of ideas. And I just would have these attacks of pain, and, and then I would take like six painkillers and just wait. I mean, it was kind of fairly intense and uh, nasty. And my greatest fear was, what if this happened when I'm traveling in an airport, in an airplane? I mean, really, I'm going to fall apart. Or, I mean, And then finally, one day, it happened. I was just going in the play, and then I felt it arise. And then I realized I just needed to be with it as it was, not to exaggerate, not to proliferate, but just to be with it as it was. And once I did that, actually I only needed two painkillers, and it was not pleasant, but it was okay. And it was such a difference when I was kind of, in a way, grasping at it, kind of holding on it that really it, it seems it added so much more to the tension. And so in a way, it really, I know sometimes it's not pleasant to sit, especially on the ground and you have pain. But sometimes to really play a little with that, to see how can I be with this sensation in a different way. How can I not add to the exaggeration of the proliferation? And I had that experience on a retreat because of my sciatica one day. And I was in Sweden, I was doing a Zen retreat when we walk, and I had a bit of sciatica. And so I walk for 10 minutes with everybody, and then I come back to sit, and I'm doing the bear, and I sit, and my leg is on fire. I never, never had such pain in my leg. It was just throbbing, it was on fire. And then I thought, 30 minutes of this, how can, I, how can I handle this, you know? And I just, again, creatively engaged with it. I just went inside it. And I've never been so concentrated in my life. <laughs> and every second I was aware of the leg. I was present to the pressure, to the throbbing. And actually, the time went quite fast. And it was not painful as such. I mean, it was uncomfortable, but I was not suffering. That's what was interesting in connection to what um, John was saying. And then at the end of the 30 minutes, I rang the bell, and I went to take two painkillers. <laughs> so to see that the, it's very important to see the creative engagement is not just about a bear, I am with it, I am with it. It's also about, I can do something there. I can, you know, also 
alleviate the pain. I think it's very important to see that. The awareness is not just bare <coughs> awareness. That's why I talk of creative engagement, creatively engaging with the sensations. So in a way, the problem is not with the contact, nor the function of the senses. But in a way, it's kind of, do I reduce myself to what I come in contact with by grasping and identifying, or do I creatively engage? And then there can be a creative response. And to finish with, just quickly, uh, in terms of feeling, because in a way it's the same thing, we, we do the same with feeling. We grasp at the feeling, and then we exaggerate and we can proliferate with feeling. And so I just wanted to say very briefly uh, something about fear. In terms of looking, again, at what I'm saying, when I said you grasp at something that is not there. And with fear, what is very important to notice a lot of the time, especially in our modern world, especially in, the, in our kind of uh, Western society, a lot of the time we are not in danger. It's very important to see fear is a survival mechanism. With my niece, I go jumping in the trees. There is this new thing now in France where you kind of just uh, go and they kind of harness you and then you just jump like Tarzan or you kind of, you know, all kind of things. And it's very much working with fear. And so one of the things the niece wanted to do was to do the Tarzan kind of uh, course. And you, you, know, you jump three meters, then you jump five meters, and then you jump 10, 15 meters, woof. And so, of course, I'm the auntie. I have to go first. So I go up, you know, the first time. And the first time I'm honest, it's totally safe, and my body is saying, no way. <laughs> We're not going to do this. But since I am up there, I have to do it. So I throw myself in the net, I climb up, and I arrive on the platform, and my body is shaking. I am fine. Inside, I have no trouble. But I can feel my body is going like this. And that's where I can... This is survival mechanism. My body is saying, wait a minute, this was dangerous, you know. But what was interesting... We, you know, we came another day. This is a favorite activity now, so I had to do it another time. So, and then that time, what was interesting is that I threw myself very easily, and once I climbed the net, there was no shaking. Like my whole organism, I'd understood this is safe. There is no danger here. So I think, in a way, to me, what is important we fear when we feel afraid, to check, am I in danger or not right now? And to see that a lot of the time, the fear is in the future. That actually we're afraid, oh, but what if that happened? What if that continue? Oh. And the problem with fear in the future is that it is abstract. And in abstraction, your creative potential cannot be accessed. This is a big problem we fear in the future. And so the abstraction feeds on itself. When actually when the thing happened, 
you generally can deal with it. This happened to a friend of mine. For 30 years, he was afraid if something happened, my life will be finished, I won't be able to stand it, it will be horrible. And so at the back of his mind for 30 years, he had that fear, that tension. And then finally it happened. And I saw him that year. And he looked a little strange. I said, what's the matter? He said, you know, what I was afraid for so long, it happened. And I am fine. <laughs> I am fine. <laughs> and he was kind of like saying to me, why was I afraid so for so long? And he was fine because in the moment of it, he could access his creative potential. But in the futuring of it, he could not. So I will finish with this. Uh, I was, one, when I'm really tired, one of the things I enjoy nowadays is zapping because I have 18 channels free. <laughs> and I enjoyed that. And uh, sociologically, it's kind of fun. And then one day, recently, I fell on Dinotopia, the film, not the series. And I thought, mm, what's that? It's kind of a little strange. And what they were saying was, it's a film about kind of dinosaur and things like that. And I felt it was a little kind of, there's a certain interesting feel to it, that film. So I kind of watched it. I stayed with it. And then came this amazing moment. Everybody should see this film just for that moment. And it was about, you know, you have about 10 minutes where you have this young man, which when you see him, you recognize him, but I won't tell you now. And it's all about fear. That 10 minutes is really about this young guy who was, he was really kind of timorous and he's always afraid. And he's learning to be a kind of flying, some kind of flying dinosaur or whatnot. And so one of the exercises is to jump over a cliff, from one cliff to the other. And of course, there is this huge chasm. So here is our little timorous guy. Everybody can do it, of course, because the other ones are not afraid. They've gone beyond fear. And here is our little guy. And then the instructor says, fear in, is in the future. Jump now. <laughs> and he doesn't jump. Because he's in the future, the little timorous guy. <laughs> so he's not in the now. <coughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.